Please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. This is the final chapter of the book of Judges, so it's been a while. We've been in this Judges sermon series, and we are starting to land the plane. Uh, We're going to tackle the first seven verses this morning, and then we'll get into all of the the chaos and the mess of the... uh, of the rest of this chapter next week. Um, But for this morning, we're going to concentrate on these first seven verses. I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, Many of y'all are aware this is is one of our habits here at ECPC. We stand for the reading of God's book because uh, we're trying to do what we can to, to fully engage with what God is saying to us and be as fully attentive as we possibly can be. So with that in mind, put your full attention on Judges chapter 21, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 7. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early, and they built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. Y'all can have a seat. God, as always, we need your help. And you are very consistent and very emphatic in reminding us that you love it when we come to you and ask for help. You... You have a, a short story where you talk about this, this um, lady who keeps coming to this very, very cantankerous judge, and she just nags him and bothers him and wears him down, and eventually he gives her what she wants because he's just so annoyed, and you say, now come to me like that. It's like you're daring us to annoy you with our neediness. And uh, what, you, what you show us in Scripture is that you, you never grow weary. In fact, you delight in how much we, we need you. you. You want us to reciprocate that, to, that delight. You want us to be delighted in how much we have to desperately depend on you. And so we bring that to you. We admit that. We, we need you to guide us through this passage. We need you to teach us, unless you were involved, and uh, help us to really take to heart what, what you want us to take to heart, that we might be shaped and conformed more to the image of Jesus. And we ask that you would do this in his name. Amen. When my sister and I were little kids, maybe ages four, five, six, somewhere in that range, we decided to wallpapering the walls, and we thought, you know, we could probably do that to the floor. I guess you'd call it floor papering, but we called it wallpapering the floor. Um, And my sister and I, you should know, we didn't always get along like normal siblings. You know, we had our arguments and we had our run-ins and disagreements and fights, but we really came together and we united and we collaborated on this project. Um, And I'll also tell you, we had to get really creative, get very resourceful because we didn't have any money 
to go buy wallpaper. We didn't have a car to go down to the wallpaper store. So we really had to figure out how to pull this off. So what we did was we gathered up all of our children's books. Winnie the Pooh, I remember Berenstein Bears was there. Some, some Dr. Seuss, probably Green Eggs and Ham, some of his other famous works. And my sister, what we did was my sister would rip a page out of one of the books and then she would hand it to me and then I would very carefully, you know, ever so delicately place it on the floor and then she would rip another page out and hand it to me and I would go place that page next to the previous page. And in this way, uh, through this process, we, we wallpapered the floor of our bedroom. And um, I, I got to say, it was probably the most collaborative resourceful thing that my sister and I ever did in our lives. It was brilliant. And we were playing together so nicely. Like this is every mother's dream that her kids would, would get along, you know, not fight, not argue, not ask to watch TV, but, but be creative and collaborate with one another. This, this is something our mom's going to love, we thought. And uh, that's actually kind of what tipped her off that something was wrong. Like the fact that we were playing so quietly together. She hadn't heard us argue for like an hour or so or so. And so she thought, I better investigate. So she comes to our bedroom and she finds, I mean, from her perspective, uh, she finds us destroying books. You know, she doesn't interpret it for what it is. She, she thinks we're just being ornery little kids. We're being bad. Um, so she was upset, understandably. Uh, and my mom, just in this moment of frustration, she kicks the wall and her foot goes through the drywall. My, my dad, for years afterwards, said, man, good thing there wasn't a stud behind that spot on the wall. You've been broken your foot. And uh, that weekend, um, my dad had, you know, drywall patching job on his honeydew list. Now, here's the thing about this story. Clearly, uh, you know, there's, there's bad behavior, there's brokenness, there are flaws in the characters and in some of the actions and reactions. But what I want you to see is that the basics of of what you want to see, the basic good ingredients of good stuff, that exists in this story. The basics uh, of good things are there. So for example, you have kids playing together, getting along, being resourceful, being creative, you know, not playing on screens, not arguing and fighting, but, but collaborating in a creative way. You have a mom promoting good stewardship of resources, namely children's books, okay? Like, should she have kicked the wall? I think she would say that was a, that was a bad reaction, but but her heart, her, her principal point was, you know, we shouldn't be ripping up our, our children's books. And that's a good thing. And my dad, you know, he got to fix some drywall, which, you know, every dad should be handy around the house or at least try to accomplish some things on the honey-do list. And so the basics, the basic ingredients of, of good stuff, the stuff that you want to see, is there. And I think that's true in this final scene, this final chapter of the book of Judges. I mean, the book of Judges is notorious for being grotesque and difficult and corrupt and depravity is just on display all throughout the storyline. And so we are at risk of overlooking some, some basic graceful stuff that God is ordaining and authoring in, in, this, in this book and in this final scene of Judges. And so here's what I'd like to do. This week I want us to look at the response to brokenness, which is prolific in the stories of Judges. And I want us to see and really appreciate the fact that the basic ingredients of, of, of a good response are present in this story. And then next week, we will consider uh, the various 
misgivings and messiness that we clearly see displayed in this chapter. So the first basically good thing that you see in this story is the, the implementation of, of boundaries or some kind of consequence to, to something bad and something, something broken that's in the story. So in verse 1, and this is, they, they set a boundary. They say, as a consequence to the crimes in Gibeah, as a consequence to the sin of our brothers, the Benjaminites, uh, we are going to take an oath. And uh, this boundary is that no one of these other tribes in Israel is going to give their daughter in marriage to any of the Benjaminite remnant. Now, we could debate whether or not this is the absolute best boundary to establish. Is this, is this, the, most, is this the most correct boundary? boundary to put into place? Well, it's, it's hard to know for sure, objectively, but the basic principle of establishing a boundary, God would say, that's good. Boundaries, you have to establish boundaries. You have to. Uh, I remember hearing a news report of uh, a group of brothers who despised one of their siblings, this, this other brother in their family. They rejected him. They despised him. And eventually they decided that they would sell him into slavery. And so they did that. They sold their brother into slavery. Can you imagine the trauma of this? I mean, being sold by your siblings into slavery, being so hated and despised that they would go to these lengths to get you out of their, their lives and so that happened, and then they reported to their dad that, that their brother had been mauled by a wild animal. They brought back a bloody garment that belonged to their brother, and they said, this brother of ours has been, he's been killed, got attacked by a wild animal. And so the dad thinks he's dead. And now, years later, believe it or not, this enslaved sibling somehow rose through the ranks of, of this government where he was enslaved, and he became like the chief governing authority, like second in command to like the king of that country. And this was a very resource-rich nation. And lo and behold, there was this famine, like a worldwide famine. And these brothers had to travel to that resource-rich nation and, and plead for food, beg for, for resources, because this one nation was the only one that had adequate resources to help people navigate this, this famine. And, and these brothers came to, to this country and they had to, to receive help from this brother that they had sold into slavery. Now this brother, it's very interesting. When he sees his abusers coming, he doesn't immediately say, hey guys, it's me. He conceals his identity. And he actually kind of messes with them. He tests them. Because last time he interacted with these, these brothers of his, they, they were very abusive and untrustworthy. And so, he, you see, he establishes a boundary. He, he has a way of interacting with these people who have proven themselves in the past not to be trustworthy. And he says, I'm not just going to naturally trust you. It's, it's not going to be that easy. I'm going to conceal my identity. I'm going to test you. I'm going to see if you have changed. God would say, that, that's wise. Here's a more generic example. What about a swimming pool? Swimming pools. You know, you could look at just a swimming pool and say, okay, well, swimming is dangerous, right? It's water. You could drown. You could, you could dive in, hit your head, go unconscious. There's so many things that could go wrong. Okay, so should we just avoid swimming altogether? Just, just do not dive into water because the consequences might be negative or bad or damaging. Or, or do we say, well, no, swimming is, is good. There are risks, but what we'll do is we'll create 
we'll create, we'll create boundaries and, and a system of rules that help us navigate the realities of those, those invariable risks. So, for example, in a swimming pool, you have a shallow end, and then they have some kind of like floating thing that shows you this is where it gets deeper. So if, so if you don't know how to swim or you're not a strong swimmer, it's good for you to know where is that boundary? Because we don't want people just sort of drifting into the deep end and dying. <laughs> so it's good. We establish the boundary, right? Or we have rules when we go to a swimming pool. So when you go up on the high dive and you jump off, People have to wait at the bottom of the ladder before you swim out of the way because we don't want somebody coming behind you to jump on top of you, right? Now, let's say that, let's say that happened. Let's say that, you know, your friend George jumped in off the high dive after you jumped in. He didn't wait, and he landed on top of you. Should, should that person say, well, because of that brokenness, because of that bad traumatic experience, we should just stay away from pools altogether? No, we just, we just need to remind ourselves, like, what are the rules? What are the boundaries? And, and in some ways, that's what the Israelites are doing here. They're saying, clearly things are bad. Things are broken. But we're not going to withdraw completely from the Benjaminites. We're not going to write them off and say, well, I will never do life with them again because it's too risky. There's too much corruption. There's too much brokenness. There's too much damage. Well, no, but... But we're going to have to be aware of those, those narratives of brokenness, the history that does exist. And we're going to have to figure out a way to constructively move forward. And boundaries, establishing some kind of rule or boundary is how we do that. Now, equally as important as establishing a boundary is tasting bitterness. Uh, you see in this chapter, verse 2 and following, there, there is this scene where the Israelites are very much feeling the gravity of, of this grief. They're not escaping or, or evading the reality of the bitterness that exists. They're, they're kind of pressing into it. So it says, the Israelites gather at Bethel, that's the house of God, and they simply sit there in the house of God until it's evening. So they sit there all day. And they weep. And they, they lean into the grief and the bitterness. And they ask God, why has this happened? Why has this happened? Now, what's the point? What is accomplished by this? How is this going to help anything? To, to just sit and weep. To just sit and lament. How does this help? All right, well, let me illustrate it like this. Think about this. Let's say you and I are going to go on a, a, a two-week trip. We're going to go to the airport, get on a plane, and go away for two weeks. So we leave early. You should get to the airport early. We all know that. And, and so we decide we're going to leave really early, make sure we're there with plenty of time. And on our way there, we realize, you know, we have, we have adequate time. And I say, hey, there is a great pond on our way to the airport. I know of this pond. And uh, I would like to do a little bit of fishing before we go to the airport. So we go to this pond, and we catch a fish, and we're delighted. You know, it's great. We caught this fish. We're happy about that. So we get in the car. We have our fish. We go to the airport. We go to long-term parking, and you know we're distracted. We got to get the ticket. We got to figure out where we're going to park. We got to figure out how we're going to remember where where we parked because we're going to come back in two weeks and not remember. So we're all distracted by our luggage and the logistics of parking and finding the shuttle and getting to the terminal, and we leave the fish in the car for two weeks. Okay, so we go off. We have our trip. We come back. We get to your car, and probably before we even open the door, we can kind of smell something. And then we open the door to your car, and it is pungent. Like, we fall over. It's so strong, this, this stench of the dead fish. 
Now, what would be the point of just rolling down the windows and opening all the doors? I mean, the car, a car is not designed specifically just to sit with the windows rolled down. It's designed to move, like put bodies in the car and move people through the city. This thing has wheels. That's the whole point of a car. But why? Why, why would we bother just letting the car sit, sit and, and ventilate? Well, because this really, really pungent odor, this stench is inside the car. And that's what lamentation is like. It's, there's this brokenness in our lives. There's this bitterness in our lives. And one of the most important reasons why we invest time just lamenting is because we need to vent that emotion. Because it's, it's in there. And it's not healthy to just bottle it up. Or, or to say to someone when they ask, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm just tired. I'm fine. We, we have to be able to process and vent. Because this, this stuff, this foul stench, this bitterness is inside of us. You see this all over God's word. And, and you know, in, one's, in one really dominant place in scripture, right in the middle of your Bibles, you have this whole collection of 150 prayers called the Psalms. And God says, I want you to have a high emotional IQ. I want to lead you through this whole dynamic of emoting. Because the Psalms are intensely emotional. The Psalms are full of this kind of thing where we just come to the Lord and we say, why is, is this brokenness in my life, Lord? Where are you, God? You know, sometimes, believe it or not, the psalmists come to God and they, they begin the prayer something like this. They'll say, God, I don't even know if I believe in you right now. You don't seem real today. You seem like you're hiding at best. It seems like you're not involved. Why is my life so hard? You know, sometimes the psalmists will say, I have a complaint. I will utter my complaint to the Lord. And God says, not only are you allowed to do that, understand this. The Psalms is not just God giving you license to do that. It's God commanding you to do that. It's God saying, when you do that, believe it or not, I am being worshipped. The Psalms are our primary resource for worshiping God. So it's not just that you have license to do it. God says, I love it when you come to me and you offer me what you're really feeling. You don't have to hide that from me. You don't have to worry that I can't handle that. I want to know. I want you to feel totally free to vent to me. You know, sometimes we'll allow ourselves to, to, to vent to our friends, and that can be helpful to a degree, but you got to be careful because it can quickly transition into gossip and things that aren't so healthy. But God says, you don't have to worry about that with me. If there's one relationship where you can just lay it all on the table, God says, it's, it's your relationship with me. And if you don't believe me, just read through the Psalms. If you actually pray the Psalms, you will be saying things to God that make you feel uncomfortable, but not God. God says, this is where we're going to wrestle through how, how you're navigating the brokenness, the inevitable brokenness that happens in life. A really great example of this in the life of Jesus is when his friend Lazarus dies. And Jesus goes to Bethany to visit the grave of his dear friend Lazarus. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know that when Jesus shows up in Bethany to visit the grave of Lazarus, he, he pretty quickly, like... Within a few hours of being in, in Bethany, 
I don't know exactly how long, but he eventually raises Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus probably has some inclination, some idea that that is what he's going to do. Like he knows that he's going to say, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And, and Lazarus is going to respond. Like the death is going to, to go away and, and life and rejuvenation is going to reanimate the, the body and the life, the soul of Lazarus. But it's fascinating because Jesus doesn't immediately do it. Jesus rolls into Bethany and from our vantage point, it, it feels like he wastes time weeping. He wastes time just sitting under the gravity of this loss, of this brokenness, of this grief. I don't think that's any coincidence, y'all. I think God is saying, this is a big part of my value system. We're not going to live in the, the realm of grief forever. No, forever we're going to be in a place of no more sickness, sorrow, pain, death, no more tears. But right now, you're, you're in a broken world. And actually a big dimension of knowing God and worshiping God means that you taste the, the truth of bitterness. You know, the premier psalmist is uh, probably King David. He's an obvious example of a man who does not bottle up his emotions. He was always going off to compose another psalm, you know, think through what he's really feeling, process that with God. In a major dimension of David's lament, you see this all throughout his, his prayers in the psalms, a major dimension has to do with the loss of real relationships. You know, David was related to King Saul. It wasn't just that David had this boss who was cranky and irritable and violent. It's that this was his father-in-law. This is a man that David had hoped would be his mentor. Because David knows he's, he's going to follow in Saul's footsteps. It's his father-in-law. He's, he's the king after Saul. He, would, he had hoped for a rich, vibrant relationship with this man. But that's not what he experienced. He experienced a very abusive, very, very difficult relationship with this man. And there were a lot of relationships connected to that relationship that David had to process and lament the loss of. Like his wife, Michael, that's Saul's daughter. And, and David's relationship with his wife, Michael, suffers tremendously in light of Saul's antagonism to David. David's best friend is Jonathan. That's Saul's son. David can't live in the same town as Jonathan anymore and meet with him regularly and, and share those, those important deep conversations because David has to flee for his life and go live in the wilderness. And, and David feels all of that. And y'all feel this. Yeah, we got Thanksgiving coming up here in a few days. You've already started to feel this, right? Because you've got... You've got family relationships. That means you've got baggage. You've got a history of dysfunction. You've got brokenness. And whether it's in your family of origin or in some other area of life, we've all had to navigate this. We've all had to face this to some degree or another. We have these broken relationships. You know, this, this past week, I uh, went down to the airport to collect some of the, the brothers coming in from Malaysia. And as I was standing there at the baggage claim... I was waiting for them to, to arrive, and uh, there was this guy. I don't know this guy. He was a stranger, and he walked past the baggage area, and he was just yelling and cussing people out, and it was ugly, and it was weird, and at one point, this guy, I mean, there's a lot of us standing there at the baggage claim, but at one point, I swear, he made con eye contact with me, and it just, it was almost overwhelming. Like, I just wanted to 
just to break eye contact immediately. But you know what? I went home that night, didn't think twice about it, slept great. I, I didn't take any of his verbal abuse to heart. And you know why? It's because I don't have any real relationship with him. I don't really know that guy. But if someone I really know, someone I really care about, just looks at me in a way that feels kind of off, oh man, it gets to me. It, it feels so burdensome. And, and God says, I know that's how y'all are feeling. And you know, one of the reasons you feel that way is because you're made in my image and I created you to value each other. So there's actually a positive dimension to why you're so bothered. It's because you care and you can't not care. Because God's wired us for deep, meaningful relationships. And when you lose what was once a really edifying, fruitful, rich relationship, and you're not on speaking terms with that person anymore, and it's odd, it's, it's like you're walking on eggshells, you're avoiding each other, you know that that feels horrible. And God's saying, you need to see that that's what's our feeling about Benjamin. They don't say, well, the Benjaminites are nasty, they're broken, they committed these crimes, and so we are done with them forever. That's not what they say. It says they have compassion for Benjamin. Yes, Benjamin has committed crimes. Yes, there are consequences. Yes, there are boundaries. But that doesn't change the fact that this, this brokenness deeply, deeply burdens us. And we're not done with the relationship. We're going we're gonna to try to wrestle through how to continue to do life with these brothers. These Benjaminites, there's history, there's baggage here. But we still have to dive in. <laughs> to do in life together. We have to figure that out. That's what God is showing us here in the community of Israel at the end of Judges. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with this really, really simple, obvious, but extremely profound fact, which is that we obviously really, really need help. <laughs> because the truth is all this brokenness most primarily is the result of of us. It's the result of our sin. And if we are the chief contributors to the brokenness, we are not going to be the chief contributors to the solution. That's like me going to a surgeon. You know, maybe I've, I've had unhealthy habits for years. Right? Let's say I smoke five packs a day or something. Now I have lung cancer. And I go to a surgeon and I say, I know I'm the problem. I mean, I know I did this to myself, but I'm here to help and assist you in performing surgery on me. You know, I'd like you to not put me to sleep. I'd like to have my hand in on the surgery as well. The surgeon, any, any surgeon who knows anything would say, no, 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 you don't understand. You're not going to be the primary contributor to the cure. You can confess your need. You can bring all of your internal corruption and neediness. That's a healthy step for you to take. But let's be really clear. We're not going to rely on you or on your sufficiency to solve your problem. And it doesn't matter what arguments I think I can make. I can say, well, yeah, my lungs are damaged, but I can still do 50 push-ups, get credit for something. The surgeon's going to say, that has nothing to do with your problem. Don't, don't try to change the subject. Don't try to claim some version of righteousness in your own strength. Don't, that just distracts from what we need to do here. We need to do some deep, invasive work in your life. And that's going to involve you surrendering 
which is the opposite of you feeling sufficient. We hate surrendering. We love feeling sufficient, even if that's completely delusional, but we hate surrendering. But that's what God's saying you have to do. And that's what God is showing us in this, this scene where they build the altar. It says in verse 4, the next day, the people, they wake up early and they build an altar. Now, we, we all know that we could attempt to try to assign the Israelites some credit for building the altar. But the reality is you don't get credit for building the altar. The, the altar is a confession of sin. You build an altar not to feel righteous and pious. You build an altar because you know you're broken and you're pleading with God to invade your life with his grace because you're a very broken, needy sinner. We, we come to God with this, this picture of the Israelites building this altar and the best way, really the only legitimate way to interpret this is the Israelites build the altar to say, look, God, we've We've attempted to do life in our own strength. Throughout the whole book of Judges, our contribution, the theme, the reoccurring statement is they did what was right in their own eyes. So we've tried to do life in our own strength, according to our own wisdom, and it has, it has produced nothing but problems. And, and even if we tried to make it better, it only seemed to somehow make it worse. So this altar is a is a sign of us saying, God, we need you. We cannot trust in ourselves anymore. We can't just do what's right in our own eyes anymore. We need you. And whether the Israelites are really in tune with that dominant theme or not, that's the fact. That's what an altar is. The Bible says, look, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs never, ever, ever actually atoned for your sin. The reason God gave you the sacrificial system was to point you to this full, final moment when God would absolutely, once and for all, deal with your sin. That's the whole point of an altar. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament of a, a guy, you probably have heard his name, Noah. And Noah, we're told, he's a righteous man. At the beginning of the story of Noah, we're told, everybody in the world is wicked. They only think wicked thoughts. They only do wicked things all the time. That's all they do. And there's this one man who is set apart, and we're told he's righteous. And so you're, you're perhaps thinking, well, okay, so Noah's a good guy. He's not as sinful as all these other people. Okay, so you go through the story. God supernaturally preserves Noah and his family. And then right after the flood, when the waters subside, we see Noah, first thing he does is what? Builds an ark. And again, maybe you're tempted to think, ah, oh, what a pious, righteous fella Noah is. And then what happens immediately after he builds that ark? He turns to alcohol. He becomes a drunkard. He's been through a lot. He's trying to cope with seeing everybody in the world die. And he's got some family issues that are hard to deal with. And so he drinks and he drinks and he gets drunk. He passes out naked. And then we're told that there's some really intense fight that goes down between him and one of his sons, Ham. That's fascinating, right? Because God just cleansed the world of sin. That's what the flood was. And yet the chief character, like the hero of the story, Noah, the very first thing we're told about him after God has cleansed the world is that 
sin is still very, very much here. And that's not meant to discourage us, y'all. That's meant, very provocatively, that is meant to point us to this. God says, it's all about what I will come and do for you. Because brokenness is a reality, and we all know that. That's the one thing that every religion on the planet can agree with. There's something wrong. The world's a hard place. It's a corrupt place. It's a violent place. It's very damaged. So what can deal with the problem? What is the only definitive, effective response to the brokenness? And God says, it's this. For every nation on the planet, the exclusive, definitive, effective response to brokenness, God says, it's the body and blood thing. That's the absolute only thing that's can, that can help y'all. This is where you have to bring all of your neediness and brokenness. You have to come to this table and, and say, I don't just need this as a piece of my life, like a peripheral part of my life. I need this to be the most primary, dominant obsession of my life. The lavish love and grace of God, that has to be my fixation, which is why we don't just look at it. In a moment, you're going to be invited to come up and ingest it. Because <laughs> God says, this has to get inside of you. My forgiveness is what will change you. The Bible says those who have been forgiven much those are the people who can actually love much. And what will cover all that brokenness? The Bible says there is something that can cover a multitude of sins. What is it? Love. But we don't, we don't just love. I can't just command you all to love. You have to be forgiven much if you're going to love much. So, so we have to marinate in this mystery of God forgiving us so, so lavishly. If we are going to be cured, if we're going to be people who actually enter into the rigors of loving each other much, God says, this is the cure for your brokenness. We come to God, and to some extent, rightly so, and we say, God, what resources do you have? You know, we're all looking for a program, some kind of resource to help us navigate the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness around us. So what resources do you have for me, God? And God says this. This is my response to your brokenness. I'm going to immerse myself in your brokenness. I'm going to send my son. He's going to be a man of sorrows. He's going to be intimately acquainted with grief. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he says, Jesus is going to immerse himself in the brokenness of this world so intensely that he who knew no sin is going to become sin. He's going to take our curse the wretchedness of our sin. He's going to enter into it and become sin. In some mysterious sense, that's what the Bible says. And you, conversely, get to become the righteousness of God. Y'all, that's what's actually happened in the death of Jesus. And that's what we get to live in the freedom of because he rose from the dead. And we get to know that he's alive and he's preparing a place for us because he treasures us and he wants us to come be with him forever. This has to be our obsession. I thought about this as I was preparing this sermon this week. I thought about Moses. I thought about all the brokenness that Moses had to narrate. I mean, not just the people of Israel. They were always grumbling, and it was a huge burden on Moses. But remember Moses' brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam. Even they tried to overthrow him at certain points. Even they betrayed him 
and, and rejected him and, and held him in contempt. And there's this fascinating line in the letter to the, the Hebrews where it says, you know how Moses navigated all that? Like really specifically, you should be wondering, how did Moses hold up under the pressure of all of that brokenness? And it says this, he was able to navigate the brokenness because he was considering the reproach of Christ as his highest treasure. Moses had access to the wealth of Egypt. He grew up in the palace of Pharaoh. And it says, the reproach of Christ was esteemed as more valuable by Moses than the royal treasuries of Egypt. That's what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to consider the reproach of Christ, the definitive response to brokenness, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus. And don't just consider it, cherish it, celebrate it. Make it your victory cry. Make it the thing that you obsess about more than any other thing because this will shape everything about how you live, how you act, how you react in this broken, damaged world. Brokenness in your marriage, brokenness in your family, brokenness in yourself. God says this is the only thing that will really nourish you. This is the only thing that will cure you and lead you in the way of life to the fullest. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for becoming the lamb who was slain. You knew that from the very beginning of your ministry. It's one of the first things that people heard about you. They, they were told, behold, there is the lamb of God. And then after you rose from the dead and all of these miraculous stories about you circulated, this still remained the emphasis in the revelation Last book of the Bible, you picture yourself as the Lion of Judah, but what we see is the Lamb who was slain. Because you want the lavish forgiveness of Jesus to absolutely dominate us and define us. To shape everything about the way we navigate our brokenness and the rigors of all the relational stuff around us. God, we ask that you would focus us on Jesus the theme verse of this church, we pray that you would cultivate it personally and deeply in our life, individually and, and collectively, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and having died three days later, came back from the dead to announce that we've won through, through this means of salvation, this mystery Help us to steward that mystery and be shaped by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.